It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 171, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Carolyn Pam and Tim Wilcox farm 50 acres of vegetables at Kitchen Garden Farm in western Massachusetts. Starting with an acre of produce in 2006, Caroline and Tim have steadily expanded the farm's scale and added fire-roasted salsa and a naturally fermented sriracha to their farm's production. We discuss the value-added products, now those fit into the work and overall business of Kitchen Garden Farm since they account for a significant portion of the farm's revenue. Tim and Caroline dig into the process of scaling up their operation, including how they manage a multitude of different locations for production, and they share how they developed a wholesale-only marketing strategy and the nuts and bolts of how that works on their farm. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by BCS America. BCS tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com And by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com And by Farmers Web, software for your farm. Farmers Web makes it easier to work with your buyers, saving time, reducing errors, and increasing your capacity to work with more buyers overall. FarmersWeb.com Caroline Pam and Tim Wilcox, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks for inviting Hi. us. Thanks for having us on. So I'd like to start off by having you guys tell us about Kitchen Garden Farm there in Sunderland, Massachusetts. How big of an operation do you guys have? What are you guys growing? How long have you been in business? And all of those kinds of details to set the stage for us. Well, I could start a little bit. We are growing 50 acres of certified organic diversified vegetables, a lot of specialty vegetables. We kind of specialize in a lot of things. So peppers, tomatoes, eggplants, roots, radicchio, Asian and European varieties. Our brand is variety and exceptional quality. Tim, you want to talk about where we are? Yeah, so we're farming here in the Connecticut River Valley. There is a great community of other farms around here. I went to Hampshire College, and that's sort of how we both ended up here. I was there from 2001 to 2005, and we started the farm just shortly thereafter in 2006. We were on one acre of rented land originally, and over the last five to seven years, we've really started scaling it up. So we, starting in 2015, we were growing on 30 acres and so we've been adding some new land and a lot of new infrastructure and equipment pretty rapidly over the last couple of years. I guess I should also mention the thing that I always forget to say right when I introduce the farm is that we also make sriracha and salsa and we have this whole line of value-added products from our own ingredients that we make ourselves that has become a really big part of the business as well. How big of a part of the business? I mean, is it half of what you're doing? Is it a quarter of what you're doing? Yeah, it's about a quarter. I think it's about a quarter. Okay, so pretty darn significant. I do want to come back to that because I think there's a lot of interesting things to talk about, about having a value-added line, and especially on a farm of your scale. I feel like the value-added things like the salsa or the sriracha or people doing pickles or jams and jellies tend to be with smaller operations. You guys are, I mean, 50 acres of vegetables is, uh, that's a lot of vegetables. And having a value-added enterprise on top of that, I mean, that's a pretty significant undertaking. Yeah, we like to work a lot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we're, we're well, just no, I mean, embarking it's... now 
on a big investment into the value added so that it can scale up to be somewhat more comparable to the scale of the vegetable operation. So that's the next phase for us to be have both of those parts of the business be pretty sizable. The sriracha and salsa is sort of like the latest incarnation of a real effort since we started the farm to have like a culinary focus in one way or another. So there was a time where we were doing a lot of farmers markets and we had rented a kitchen and we had a kitchen staff that was making prepared foods ready to eat at farmers market. We don't do that anymore. And then we had like a CSA that was like a pre blue apron kind of like recipe box thing that we were doing for a while. And we sort of scrapped that. And so like now this is like the thing that we kind of have, as we've scaled up the farm, we've sort of been able to get really good at growing a lot of, a lot of a lot of things but you know we can go out and bust out like a whole truckload of peppers in an afternoon and take them up to the processing facility the next day and we've kind of figured that out as like something that is really kind of cool and exciting when you say take those peppers up to the processing facility that's your own processing facility right you guys are actually doing that processing we do the processing and hopefully by sometime this winter, it will be our own processing facility, but we currently are using a community food processing center. Uh, it's about 15 minutes away. It's called the Western Mass Food Processing Center in Greenfield. Oh, interesting. But this year, we're building our own kitchen on the farm, so this is a huge next phase for us. We've got grants lined up, loans we're closing on tomorrow, all of the plans in the works, and the contractor going to show up any day now to start demo and start construction. So... That's where we're at. That's the next step. Why have you guys decided to bring that processing in-house rather than continuing to rent a facility? Well, the community food processing center that we use is a great place to get started. They have all this equipment, pretty small industrial size processing equipment, like the big steam kettles that we use and the bottle filler and all this kind of stuff that we wouldn't have necessarily wanted to like buy when we were just starting out. So it's a great place to start, but working in a shared facility like that with such a seasonal product has been challenging Um, in order to get any sort of flexibility with the scheduling. We have to have all of our dates actually booked in January. So, you know, if the crop is a week early, there's no way of getting an extra day, for example, because it's a pretty high demand facility. So those, those are the kind of challenges that we're, we're hoping to have our own facility where we can process when the crop is ready every day, you know, during the harvest period, because we get about six weeks of pepper season and we're doing something like last year we did 19,000 pounds of uh, hot peppers processed. So it's a short window to do a, a lot of stuff. Right. We've had to do crazy amounts in a given day because we only get so many days in that space. And so We've not had a dedicated kitchen team. We've been pulling our production crew off the farm to go to the kitchen and work on the farm is not happening on those days when we're processing. And so we're looking with building our own facility to have a dedicated year round full-time kitchen crew that is not interfering and drawing resources away from farm operations during processing time, but can be happening in tandem simultaneously and have the convenience of not having to move the peppers 20 minutes off site and gain more control and a little bit more sanity, which I'm sure it won't end up feeling that way when we have this other (laughs) parallel business at full steam. 
simultaneously, but we're just looking to streamline it. And we've recently made a big investment of a new barn and washroom on the farm. And that brought home, you know, cooler space that we had been renting offsite and just the amazing increased capacity and efficiency that we've gained from that investment just inspired us to want to do the same for the value added part of the farm. Are you guys marketing these things at a farmer's market? Are they going through a CSA or is this all going wholesale? With the exception of a small percentage of our overall sales that we do just direct on our website, it's all wholesale. We no longer do any farmer's markets. We no longer have a CSA. We're a strictly wholesale farm operation at this point. So now we're entering this market with the sriracha and salsa that's sort of like the national regular mainstream food products market. It's not really being marketed through the farms per se. So we are selling to a distributor that sells to Whole Foods throughout the Boston area. We sell to a lot of stores and farm stores in our area direct, but we also ship directly to specialty food boutique shops, retailers out in San Francisco and in Minnesota and across the country. So it's sort of got a life of its own. It's not just a farm product. Yeah, it's almost like we kind of have two separate businesses that we're kind of operating simultaneously. So on the one side, we're doing 50 acres of veg wholesale sold locally and then through distributors to sort of like a three-hour radius around from Boston and Cape Cod to Rhode Island and Worcester and the Berkshires and New York City. So the value-added marketing is like a whole separate thing with different distributors and, and online sales and, you know, we do some trade shows and stuff like that. Wow. Yeah. So the sriracha and salsa through all of the same channels as the veg, but in addition, also through sort of more mainstream specialty food product distribution channels. And it sounds like that value added aspect was something that when you guys started, or at least very early on in the business's development, that that was something that felt important to you. I don't think we identified value added products as the way that we would express our interest in food through the farm. That really happened by chance in 2013 when we made the first five-gallon bucket of hot sauce for our chili fest. And we were like, let's make something we could sell at the festival. But I had gone to culinary school prior to deciding to farm and had been a restaurant critic and a journalist. And I'd been very interested in food. And that's sort of what brought Tim and me together first and before we decided to pursue that through farming. Once we decided to do the farm and we're growing vegetables, we were always experimenting, like Tim was saying earlier, with ways to have food that we prepare be a part of the farm. And that we did farm dinners and lots of other ways of approaching that. So we didn't know that we wanted to have a bottled product on the shelf at Whole Foods. That was never really the specific goal. Yeah, but we were, we've always been looking for that sort of unique sort of way that we can express our love of food and cooking um, with people, you know, back in the early days, we would go to farmer's markets with recipes and we would talk about what their grandmother used to make. And it was awesome. But, you know, we sort of tried these various iterations to like express our culinary knowledge and skill and appetite and passion. And this is kind of like the latest thing that is the thing that stuck the most. So we're rolling with it. Do you anticipate that with the construction of a new facility specifically for doing the value-added processing that you're going to expand your product line? 
Yeah, that's definitely part of the goal. We have some ideas of other types of stuff that we want to do. We want to get into doing dried peppers and smoked peppers sort of in the short term. And then in the longer term, we could see doing like processed tomato products or pickles or other types of things to expand out the processing season. So currently we're processing tomatoes, tomatillos, onions for the salsa, mostly in August and then peppers just from September 1st through the middle of October. So we're really only processing veg out of the field for like two and a half months. But if we had, you know, a cucumber product, for example, or like a cauliflower carrot product or both, you know, we could have processing happening on five, six months of the year or pesto, you know, or pesto. June one. Mm-hmm. so yes, that's definitely part of the goal. What kind of a season do you have for your fresh vegetable operation? Do you guys do a lot of season extension with that? Yeah, we're growing year round. Um, we have several high tunnels, so we're doing greens in the winter and we do a lot of storage routes. We were able to expand our cold storage facilities quite a lot when we built the new barn two years ago. So we are working all through the winter, filling orders, shipping orders, and then of course, processing sriracha and salsa, keeping the crew busy in the kitchen that way, and then selling those products and doing the bulk of the marketing for that during the winter time because we have a little bit more time. But yeah, it never stops. So we're growing greens, you know, for harvest in March and in January. And the only time we ever shut the farm down is for one week in February when the kids have their school break and we take a trip. Nice. How many kids do you have? We have two. Son and Our daughter, daughter. Lily is 10. Yeah, Lily's away at sleepaway camp right now. She's 10 and Oliver is 8. The farm came first, then we got married, then we had kids, and we've been growing the farm and the kids at the same time. Was that intentional to grow the farm and the kids at the same time, or did it just kind of happen that way? Everything just kind of (laughs) happened. I was actually listening to um, another episode of your podcast today, trying to get my brain sort of wrapped around having to do an interview when I've got so much going through my brain about the crops and the heat and the dry weather that we're having and how to plant this two acre field of Brussels sprouts without any irrigation. So I'm like, I'm, my brain is like incredibly cluttered, but I wanted to like focus on this podcast. So I was like listening to your interview with Siri and Jason from local roots farm out in Duval, Washington. Yeah, and honestly, if you want to get to know anything about us, you should just re-listen to that episode because they're like our doppelgangers. <laughs> <laughs> we've like, been I, Instagram we've buddies. Met That's the power of the internet. But yeah, we have a similar outlook, and I thought you know, what they were saying about raising their children was very similar to what, what happened on our farm, which is that Everything about how we started the farm was extremely naive and incredibly idealistic. So we had this vision of, oh, you know, we're just going to, we work at home. So like, it's no sweat to have children. And uh, after one season of like schlepping the baby to the field and to the market, we were just like, maybe you want to speak for yourself, Caroline, but yeah, kind of like, no way. (laughs) Right. Our daughter was born in February. So that first spring we had a baby, we would just carry on and carry her in the carrier and roll the stroller out into the tunnel and put a garbage bag over it when the rain came and shove it under the truck for shade, bring it 
to the market and put it in a crate with a wet burlap and try to keep her cool that way. You mean our daughter, right? (laughs) Yes, our daughter. I know. It was just sort of like, okay, I have this thing with me right now. (laughs) It was a very, very challenging year just trying to pretend that I didn't have to change anything and obviously nursing all the time and my mother coming out two days a week to spend the night and give me a free hand to, to do my work. And I'm kind of a workaholic and really found that I wasn't doing the best for my child by just bringing her out into the field with me, that that wasn't actually, the vision wasn't matching what I had thought it was going to be like. So we've decided to not have our kids run free on the farm with us. We go to work, they go to school, they go to daycare when they were younger, and they're not exactly farm kids. They come on the weekend to help us water and they come and help weed pick some carrots. They don't love it. They're way more into skateboarding and guitar and piano and gymnastics and all the other stuff that they're into. So yeah, we'll see. They find it interesting. They become food snobs, which, you know, I'm very proud of. They will not eat non-farm carrots. They are very discerning. Yeah. Now they love a real tomato. But um, having children and coming to the realization that neither one of us was going to be a full-time parent definitely was a driver for our expansion, which is sort of what I was picking up on in the other interviews that I listened to today. Because, you know, childcare is expensive. It's like 12 grand a kid here for the preschool that we were in. And so it's kind of like, well, we're not even, we were growing seven acres at the time. And it's like, you know, we'd be lucky if our net was 24,000 and now we just need this for childcare. Like, okay, well, we got to figure out a way to farm more, which, you know, at the time we, we had purchased our main farm, which was just a tiny farmhouse and seven acres of land and we put in greenhouses and built a pretty rustic barn. We built like a rudimentary pack room in there. And so we kind of had like built this little farm up from scratch. And it was, you know, we were plugging away with our farm all cub. And we were just kind of like hitting this wall of like, we really need to expand. And land here is so, number one, it's expensive. But even if you had all the money in the world, it's not for sale. Um, It's like some really, really good farmland, and it took us a long time to get access to, first of all, any land. So in 2012, we were able to rent 12 acres of nearby land that was like extremely challenging to grow on. So it was like extremely heavy in places and then extremely sandy in other places. But fast forward, eventually we're able to buy some other land, and, and that sort of led to more access and more leases and we currently farm 56 acres but we're farming in 11 different locations all on fields under 10 acres as small as half an acre wow i i just went really piece it together (laughs) wow it's insane and we have 20 person crew so it's like chaos all the time except it's a managed chaos because we have a lot of different sort of managers and People really know how to make the farm work really efficiently. We have people who've been working with us for now their fifth year, some of them. And so people really do know the farm inside and out and can help us get everybody else on board. Like what field are we talking about? F123, Waitley123, Baseball, 208, 232. Just the nomenclature is a day of training. Right. 
How do you manage so many different plots? I mean, that's a it's enough of a challenge when you can stand in the field and and look out over everything that you're growing and it's all right there. And having things scattered all through the valley, how do you keep track of what needs to be done where? It's one of the interesting things about this area is that we had this sort of vision that, okay, you know, you buy a farm and like that's your farm. But we started looking around at our neighbors and where our main farm is, is this giant, you know, they call meadows here, which is a flat sort of like river bottom soil, big extensive fields, but they're carved into these little strips. And so like we have one seven acre strip and another six acre strip. And then there's another farm like in the next bed. And then like that's another 10 acre strip. And then there's another farm like in the next bed from their farm. So it's this open land, but it's like chopped up. And everybody who's farming here is farming crazy the way that we are. So we were just kind of like, well, that seems insane, but like, I guess that's what you do. And honestly, having all these small fields that are like in different locations, actually great for rotation. It's challenging here in the Valley because there's, there's a kale farm that grows 200 acres of kale and they're like right next to us. You know, you can't really rotate that well, or like, you know, there's potatoes everywhere. So you're going to have potato beetles no matter what, but like for brassica pests in particular, we have two main locations that are five miles apart and we try to do all our brassicas on one of the sites whenever possible, like every other year. So Nebraska's just end up being everywhere. But when we had only this one plot, you know, it's much harder to do effective rotation for pests than it is if you got when it's all land, continuous. you know, all over the place. And then also scaling up, we'll prep the whole field and we'll plant it within a week. And I somehow that seems easier to me than than having like what we used to do on our smaller scale, which was like, okay, well, these two beds of lettuce are done over here but the parsley we planted next to them is not done yet so like now we have this field that's all chopped up and we're trying to double crop it and it's a mess and i feel like it's much easier to have all these different fields like it's an acre of this you know it's an acre of that and you kind of just go and it's still a mess but so tim and i have a division (laughs) of labor where he manages more the production the tillage the planting, the cultivation, and then I manage everything from harvest forward. And so it's just a lot of logistics because we have all of the fields are on two different sides of the river. So we just have crews that are split, the Waitley crew, the Sunderland crew, the home farm is what we call it. And you really hope that you don't come home from Waitley and discover that you're two bunches short of carrots because it's a real time suck. So it's just a lot of forethought and managing of the crews. And, you know, you just have to drive around and and physically see what's happening or depend on your team to report back to you accurately when we're trying to forecast availability or determine if the crop is done or if it's ready. And we do a lot of driving around. So I'm trying always to increase efficiency by managing as little transport 20 minutes each way with five people. It's a lot of labor. So that's definitely always on our minds. And because you emphasize quality so much when you're harvesting so far away from home, you talk about harvesting 20 minutes away from home. How are you maintaining quality on a product that you're picking that far away? A lot of trips. So we have wet, we have shade and we have, you know, 
just just for getting all of the cool leafy crops in the morning and then all of the harder bulky crops in the afternoon and just shuttling them back to the washroom for processing immediately in waves throughout the day. That's the best we can do until we have some sort yeah, of I mean, leaf or harvest vehicle. Something that's unique about our farm is that we may be the largest farm that's run like a tiny farm. <laughs> We're real. I mean, we just are doing the same farm that we used to do 10 years ago when we were on two acres with 20 people. We're all just doing more of the stuff that we used to do the exact same way. It seems like, I mean, we've added some equipment. We've put in a lot of washroom infrastructure. That's like made it possible to wash a thousand bunches of carrots and beets and onions at the end of the day when they come in at five and be out of there by seven. So like we have built some efficiency into it, but we're still bunching carrots. We're doing pretty finicky stuff and we're doing a lot of it. So I think we're just insane. Maybe that's how we do it. <laughs> <laughs> you are asking these questions like, how do you do this insane thing? And it's like, well, you just have to kind of be insane. Well, I think there is something to that, right? I mean, it is just being willing to deal with the situation that you find yourself in. I mean, it's kind of like your decision to scale up. You know, it's like, well, we've got kids and it's not working. So what are we going to do? We're going to grow the business. I mean, in and of itself, that's kind of an insane proposition right there. And I do think the only way out is through when you're dealing with something like that. I'm reminded of this great quote from The Terminator that I watched with my son and daughter recently because I'm trying to educate them in uh, 80s pop culture. The guy that comes back from the future to like save the mother of the future revolutionary leader, he says to her, you have to be stronger than you know you can be. And I just feel like that is like a perfect metaphor for farming at all. It's like you don't have any idea what you're willing to tolerate or like what you're able to accomplish until you are in that moment and you have to do it. You just have to do it. At this time of year, I mean, it's July, everything's crazy. We're so tired and our crew is tired. We had a heat wave last week. We had seven straight work days in a row of over 90 degrees. And I feel like the main thing we're teaching them, humid, 110% humidity. I feel like the main thing we're teaching them right now is just like how to deal with hard stuff. <laughs> and know. yet today was the first real big pepper harvest. Um, we had jalapenos and shishitos and padrones and pepperoncini and corbachi and cubanelles and purple peppers and all kinds of stuff on the list. And we're hot. It's the afternoon. We've been working hard and we're still just like so excited because they're so amazing and they're so perfect and shiny and brilliant colored and we just don't somehow lose the passion even when it's hard and find people who are inclined to be receptive to that and can really run with that and feel that and so I don't know every day there's a moment like that even though there's a lot of hard moments during the day there's a time when you are like finding something looking as good as it could possibly be or transforming it into the best version of itself that it can be and taking pleasure in that that's great Tell me about the process that you went through when you scaled up the farm, when you guys realized that that's what you needed to do. You talked about you were farming with a farm all cub and on a pretty small amount of acreage. When you guys set out to start expanding, how did you go about doing that? How did you decide what tools 
you needed to get and what infrastructure you needed to put into place? I've always been very conflicted. I ended up being sort of the production guy on the farm, but I don't have any background in farming. I mean, I guess I can't say that anymore because I've been doing it for a while. But when we started out, I had no background in farming. I had no mechanical inclination whatsoever. And I was extremely conflicted. Like we knew we needed to grow, but like I didn't want to like have to purchase equipment. I didn't want to have to operate equipment. I certainly didn't want to have to fix any equipment. So we actually took on a business partner who was another guy managing his own independent farm. And we merged our two farms together because he had some equipment that we thought it would be like pretty smooth if we were to just absorb him and his farm into our farm. And then we well, he had also lost access for anything. to his land. Right. So he had a business and he had all this equipment, but he had no land. And we had gotten this other lease and we needed equipment and we were like, Hey, let's just farm together. Like, this is going to be awesome. So that was step one for our expansion. And that partnership was pretty short lived, only lasted for two years. And by the middle of the first season, I, I had sort of had come around to like, maybe this isn't so bad, you know, farming, you know, at that time we were farming about 20 acres. And maybe I do, you know, have specific ideas about how I want this bed shaper to be set up or whatever. And so we were having compatibility issues with our, our business partner and ended up parting ways. It was all very amicable. And uh, they started up their own independent farm again with their CSA business. And it was at that time that we stopped doing CSA. This was in 2014. So then we were really just kind of like farmer's market and wholesale and we continue to expand. So there was like a small contraction there. And then we've grown the farm every year since 2014 with a lot of the same crew. And so we sort of got a chance to start over, you know, a new chapter of the farm and just grown it from there. Through that partnership experience, I think you really learned a lot about how much you actually knew and what your capabilities were and you know, the vision that you had for the farm. I think we learned a lot about just like the culture we wanted to have on our farm that when you are forced to sort of share something that's so deeply personal with somebody else, and then it's not meeting your expectations. I don't know. It was a very eye-opening experience to know, okay, we have a very clear vision for what we want our farm to be. And like, then we had that reset moment in 2014 where we're like, okay, very intentionally, this is the farm we're going to now do. And it's going to reflect who we are and what our priorities are. And it was a really sort of important moment turning corner for us. At that time, we were so close to shutting the farm down. We had actually interviewed for jobs, both of us, at the end of 2013. We were just so kind of like, oh my gosh, we had a bad season that year. It was really terrible weather and we lost money and we were like, oh my God, what are we going to do with this farm? Because it was a hard thing to do. And we went out and like I interviewed for like a restaurant group that was going to do a farm and they were going to pay me like $50,000 a year, which was more than I had ever made farming up to that time. And I was like tempted, but at the end of the day, we had to make the decision of like, It's too risky. We don't want to move. We have these kids. We have responsibility. We like where we live. And we've built this thing 
with every ounce of ourselves for the last seven years. And we just, we're going to double down and we're going to get deeper into debt and we're going to go all in and we're going to leverage everything and we're going to buy new equipment. And we're going to do it. And like, I haven't really fantasized about quitting farming. It used to be a, an annual ritual. You can talk to other people who worked for us back in the early days, but I was just like the Debbie Downer all summer long. I was like, why are we doing this? You know, sleep deprived, young kids, infants. I was like, this is a terrible lifestyle. This is not what I signed up for. And I was very vocal about this. But now I feel like we sort of survived. And now that we're completely leveraged and in debt up to, you know, our eyeballs. I have this sort of inner stillness about our choices. And it's like, this is just what we're doing now. And like, we're doing some cool stuff. We're pushing the edge and we're proud of what we're doing. And maybe we're making money. I have no idea. I like to think that we're making some money, but I honestly think that success for me in farming is just getting the opportunity to do it for another year and surviving and just like convincing our creditors to give us more money to keep going. Cause they believe in us. And it's just like the most amazing feeling just to keep going. Yeah. I feel like at that moment when we recommitted to the farm and decided we were going for it, we, for the first time truly identified that like the best thing we could possibly do, that mission that we had in life to make food for people. We had so much pride and investment in the farm that we had already started and built, and it had so much impact and meaning to the people that we supply and serve, and that there was nothing that we could do that would be more meaningful. Yeah, like take a job, yeah. you know, get a paycheck, pull a paycheck, get some health insurance. That's overrated. Uh, who who needs that? That's for lazy people. <laughs> Did you look at your operation and say, this is where we're going to be in 2018, and, and that's how you've built it since then. What did that vision look like, and how does it compare to where you are now? I feel like we do a lot of annual analysis and planning and do a lot of multi-year forecasting, but I don't know that we've necessarily followed a straight path. I can't remember what a specific vision that we might have set forth in 2014 might have been, but I feel like the general goals are the goals that we are achieving of just making the food that we grow available more widely, reaching markets that we weren't able to serve directly through distributors. I feel like there's a lot of meaning in the fact that the food that we're growing here in this little corner of Massachusetts is it's reaching a lot of people. And I think that that's one of the goals for me. Looking back to where we were in 2014 and sort of hitting the reset button and looking at where we are today, I kind of think that we sort of knew at that time where we wanted to go. And I think that the milestones that we've crossed, we got on better land. That was number one. Like I remember writing this up for our loan officer because we did this annual report. I write up this whole narrative thing about, oh, this is, you know, the spread of enterprises and these are the percentages and this is the growth or contraction. And so I like wrote this thing of like, this is what we need. We need better land. And until we get better land, we can't build better infrastructure. So we need land and infrastructure. And we've done that. And at the same time, we had decided that 
we were going to stop doing prepared foods and catering, which we were doing. We were doing events, catering, prepared foods at markets in 2013 and 2012 to some extent. And we scrapped that and we were like, we're going to focus on this value added product. And that's what we did. We did all those things. So I kind of think that we are kind of where we thought we would be, even to the extent that last winter, or maybe it was two years ago, we had a sort of a visioning session with our staff who was returning about like, we've done everything we wanted to do. Now what? Do you remember that? I do. I was just putting that together that we had sort of laid out these goals and then we accomplished those goals. And then we were having this conversation with them. Okay, so now what should the next phase look like and bringing our crew into a conversation with us, like you're on this team with us, what should our next set of goals be that is going to make this farm the place that we all want to be putting all of our energies into? And that was where the idea for building the kitchen at the farm came from. We had not really identified that as a specific absolute necessity because we had the facility we were working out of. But it became clear through that conversation that the energy that being the farm that grows the peppers, that makes the hot sauce, that makes the salsa, that that just was such a energizer for the crew and just something that people were passionate about being a part of and that that was really a direction that we should put a lot more energy into. Great. All right. With that, I think we're going to stop here, take a quick break, get a Quick word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Caroline Pam and Tim Wilcox from Kitchen Garden Farm in Western Massachusetts. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is supported by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need with a PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, the flail mower, the power harrow, the rotary plow, the snow thrower, the log splitter, and more. You name it, you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way, way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheel farm tractors, and it has many of the same features. I've used other tillers and mowers, and I spent most of the time that I was using them thinking of how much easier it would have been with a BCS. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments, plus videos of BCS in action. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. What if you didn't have to worry about weak transplants and poor germination due to less than great potting soil? Or getting truly finished compost for your homemade blend? Or making sure that your employees remember to add the fertilizer charge? What if you could grow plants up until the roots filled the container without having to worry about supplying extra fertility? And what if your potting soil had your back consistently year after year? That's what Vermont Compost Potting Soil can bring to you. I used Vermont Compost Fort V as a blocking mix and potting soil for over 12 years on my farm. We grew some great transplants with it. I mean really great transplants, year after year after year, without worry and with the confidence that I was truly setting my plants up for success. In something that's subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something you can count on. VermontCompost.com All right, and we're back with Caroline Pam and Tim Wilcox from Kitchen Garden Farm in Western Massachusetts. So you guys are doing all of your marketing right now through what I think of as wholesale channels. So selling to restaurants, selling to grocery stores, and I think you said selling to wholesale distributors. And that's for your fresh produce as well as for your value-added products. 
Can you tell me for the fresh produce what that marketing actually looks like on an annual basis and and on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, we are working with some of the same customers that we started out delivering to when we were just a tiny one-acre farm with a little pickup truck. And then we're also working with a lot of much bigger buyers nowadays. So we have a local route that goes out on Tuesdays and Fridays to stores and restaurants and co-ops in our you know, general vicinity. Aside from the local customers that we work with directly, we work with a number of other businesses that we were lucky at that moment in 2014 when we decided we were going to expand into wholesale and really focus on going in that direction and stop CSA. At the time, we still did some farmer's markets, but really put a lot of energy into wholesale. We were just very lucky that at that same time, a couple of new farm-based distributors came online. So we've been working with Myers Produce that is based in Vermont and brings a lot of product from there down into New York City and now to Boston as well. We've been working with Let Us Be Local, which is a similar serving restaurants primarily in Worcester. Farm Fresh Rhode Island serves restaurants and stores and institutional buyers like RISD and Brown University and hospitals in Boston and Rhode Island. There's a number of others that I could mention. Marty's Local serves the Berkshires. And we just sort of have been in the right position at the right moment at the right time when we were ready to scale up our availability to meet the demand of these new distributors that were serving similar types of customers that we sell to directly, the stores and restaurants, but in urban areas like Boston and New York and, you know, just a lot higher volume. Because that was one of our issues. Our area is very competitive for farming. There's a lot of large-scale organic farmers here and conventional. But, you know, at a certain point, if you want to get bigger, you got to find a market elsewhere because there's just the River Valley Co-op in Northampton can only have so many suppliers of bunched carrots and pickling cucumbers. So we've been really aggressive in working with a online software program that was not really adapted to a single farm using it. We work with local food marketplace that's based in Oregon, I believe, that was designed for food hubs to source for multiple farms and then sell direct to consumers. But I found that the software was the best for my needs of anything that I had found. And that's really what has also enabled us to sort of really add the number of customers that I'm managing without being constantly at my computer. Cause I basically have no time at my desk. Whereas I used to have like 20 hours a week where I would be sending out my email list and receiving the orders and compiling them into spreadsheets and various formatting for the pack list, for the harvest list. That was a whole lot of work that this software now does automatically. And that's been another big factor in being able to ramp it up. Tim had mentioned earlier your similarity to Jason and Siri at local roots out in Washington State. One of the things they described was that they really had a very high-touch marketing system where they were very much in the mode of emailing and calling and text messaging with everybody that they were working with. It sounds like you guys don't do that. I definitely built up the wholesale business by the main farm number is my cell phone that is always on my person and I'm never without it. And I would be calling up my chefs and buyers on schedule to get the orders and then scribbling it on paper that was in my pocket out in the field. Like that was my mode for many years. And now that we have the online ordering system, I still have a lot of communication with 
my buyers, but primarily the smaller direct buyers are sort of like in the habit and in the routine and it's, it doesn't require a lot of checking in. However, I do know what they want and I know what they like. And so if I have something that comes available that I didn't have on my list or I end up with more tomatoes than I anticipated, I know exactly who to call and I can, with a text in a second, you know, get it spoken for. So I definitely have developed a lot of those direct relationships with our, you know, chefs we've been working with for a long time. And now I have that also, but it's more of a business to business relationship with the distributors. There's a lot of forecasting and testing the waters. Like I have a buyer who's looking for so much cabbage. Would you have any of that? Or would you have all of that? So I'm definitely doing a lot of the constant communication with these buyers. And this is a new phase for me. I've been training a sales manager on the farm, somebody who's been working with us for a couple of years already and was my washroom manager, which is the next position that sort of sees which customers need the various quality grades. Like the stores really need it to look perfect. Whereas the chefs, maybe they could take it with floppy tops if they're not going to use the onion tops you know, just sort of a lot of the judgment calls. So she got trained in seeing it from that aspect with all of the insight that I had into what my specific customers' needs were that I would then communicate to her there. So now I'm training her to know all of the intricacies of what my customers would want that they didn't even tell me that they want, that I just know. So that's been an interesting experiment to see how much of that I can download onto somebody else. <laughs> She's a pretty sharp cookie, but I think that the online platform, the greatest innovation was having a transparency of how much inventory we have. Because, you know, farms are not exactly inventory-based businesses. Like, we don't actually pick anything hardly unless we already have an order for it. So the online platform really forced us in ways that seemed insane when we started forced us to stock essentially an inventory and that's actually allowed our buyers big and small to see what's available and when something sells out it's gone and it doesn't appear on the list anymore so that has been tremendous efficiency gained of like not having to call people and say oh we actually we got too many orders for tomatoes or whatever because it's all just transparent and everybody can see it when they log in. Of course, there is a lot more nuance to it because I've trained a lot of my people, the customers to tell me their wish list. So we do a lot of forecasting. I've been training my harvest manager to scope out every field and produce a number for how many bunches of Walla Walla onions do you think are remaining in this bed after we get through today's harvest? What should I be able to offer for next Friday's harvest? And that's a real skill to look at a field and come up with a number. And we've got systems in place where we have the spreadsheets with the planting schedule and the record of, you know, how many uh, trays of 228s were planted in that field. So theoretically how many plants are there and then how many per bunch. And then, you know, there's some math to back it up, but that's too slow. If you're actually trying to crop by crop, consult the spreadsheet and then come up with a number through math, like, it's a skill that I just have like built into me at this point of just like looking at a field. I think I have about a thousand fennel that I could sell tomorrow if I needed to. So I'm trying to get my staff to be sort of able to do all of the things that I do because I'm anticipating 
when we have the kitchen facility and when we're even just in construction in the near future, having my attention a little bit diverted. And it's going to be an amazing thing when I can have all of those operations happening without me being focused on them specifically on a day-to-day basis if I have to be on the production line bottling sriracha or stuff like that. So in answer to the question about the transparency of the inventory, we post a number of how many are available and when it sells out, it sells out. However, then I also train all of my most important buyers to say, I would actually take 20 more slots of heirloom tomatoes if you had them so that when I do stretch, because I love to stretch and like, if I can get more, I will get more and I will make that customer happy. I know who wants it and I don't even have to communicate again in order to, to send it to them. How do they do that through the online platform? I, I mean, if I'm ordering on Amazon, you know, you order one of something and then you don't really have an option to say, but I would take three more if you got them. Yeah, there's just a little area called order notes and they are just putting in a little note to us that we're scanning at the beginning of the day. I was only able to order two cases of picklers, but I would love 15 and that makes it easy for me to to try and make it happen. And more often than not, we fill the order. It's kind of insane, but Caroline is very good at that kind of thing. I really love to try. I love to do as much as we can possibly do and I really hate to disappoint a customer. So I love not having to cut orders. So that's what's really awesome about the inventory function. But I also love to be able to exceed their expectations. And so that's what I try to do through that system. It's kind of nice to have that as something that's built in, that exceeding expectations, that knowing that you can do that more often than not, that's a nice little marketing edge right there. When I first started working with, say, Myers Produce or some of these other distributors, we weren't really at the scale that they were needing, but I would stretch. And, you know, after a season of like more often than not, like actually getting the quantities that they were looking for, then making those winter conversations where you forecast, well, I would definitely love to continue to buy this. And like I have buyers for more than what we did this year for this particular crop, you know, we just sort of like tailored our planting plan to meet this kind of growing demand from these bigger distributors. And I think that they definitely love working with us because often I get a call like, oh, I got shorted by this farm. Do you have this? And yes, I can do it. And I don't often put them in that position. I mean, this is kind of like something that is built into our DNA as a farm because of our modest origins. So like, When we had our first season, we didn't know anything. We didn't realize how crappy the land that we were farming was. And like we had terrible stuff to work with, but we would go out into like a 20 foot bed of parsley and get a hundred bunches, you know, even if it's crappy looking and like, that's just what we do. And like, we just make it happen. Well, the end result, (laughs) the end result would not be crappy looking, but if you were to look at that field, you wouldn't be able to imagine the beautiful bunches of parsley that could be generated from it. It's actually one of the horrors that I have when I look back at pictures from the early days on my farm, how much, how often we were picking out of garbage trying to make something beautiful. We just are really good at that. (laughs) Are you still really good at that? Or has your production, has your skills in production grown so that you're not, now you'd be picking a thousand bunches of parsley out of 200 feet and when you guys go out there, is it, 
do you have good looking stuff or is it still a struggle to try to come up with stuff to meet those quality demands that you have for yourselves? Oh, I mean, we really have upped our production game a lot. We're doing a lot more pest management. You know, we're selling to grocery stores. We're selling to processors. We sell a lot of stuff to real pickles. So when we sell Napa cabbage by the bin full, like it can't be just infested bugs. So like we have gotten a lot better and my production manager has really taken the lead on sort of the pest management stuff. And I do think that we are achieving a much higher baseline quality through more focused attention on growing. But that said, like, you know, it's July, there's weeds everywhere. It's crazy. And we still have to work with what we have. And it's not always perfect. It's rarely perfect. I would say most of the time I am just like blown away by how beautiful the bunches of kales are, the size of the walla wallas, or I'm just thinking of things that I handled today. Maybe rarely but perfect I, you know, is not fair, but I tend yeah, to sort of He undersells himself. <laughs> but I do also work with my harvest crew a lot because like, they'll get spoiled. They'll go out and have the most amazing bodacious fennels. And then, you know, we'll pick through the biggest of the big and then we'll need to downgrade the size expectation for the next day's harvest because they're just going to be maybe a slightly smaller bulb that is available that day. And they're like, Oh my God, there's no good fennel here. And it's like, well, actually the fennel that you were just harvesting is amazing and couldn't possibly be any better. So there's just like even quality standards. Box. Yeah. Quality standards are flexible day to day. The conditions in the field change every day. And so that's been one of the like hardest things to train people on is to sort of be able to evolve, to understand the various versions of the thing that are beautiful and acceptable. Then there's also the factor of taking something that may not look ideal in the field, but transforming it into a beautiful bunch and something you can be very proud of. But yeah, I think that being able to spot that and to see where the good stuff is in a field is a real skill that I spend a lot of time working with people on. Just to circle back a little bit to the harvest forecasting, I know that that's a skill that is, well, it seems like it should be easy to look out in your field and go, yes, there are this many bunches of that out in the field. But it's another thing entirely to actually go out and do that and get it anything close to accurate week after week after week. And especially if you're dealing with needing to forecast more than 24 hours in advance, if you're needing to, if you're needing to deal with changes in the weather, changes in pest conditions, things like that. Can you talk a little bit about how you actually do the forecasting process? I mean, there's just a lot of familiarity with the length of the bed. And, you know, of course they vary in all the different fields to some extent, but the size of the plantings that we typically do. So a lot of it is just sort of like habitual. If I am heading into a new lettuce field that we haven't harvested yet, I feel fairly comfortable with the number of heads that might be in it. Oh, I guess it gets trickier when you have already harvested half of the field and the conditions on one end of the bed are different from on the other end. And then you're trying to figure out how many are left of the certain quality that you require. I've been trying to put this into words to train other people to do it. And it is hard to communicate, but you know, often what I do is I sort of overreach and then try to make it happen. <laughs> so you guys are selling to a lot of distributors as well as to some larger grocery stores. Have you run into 
any requirements from your buyers as far as uh, gap certification or any other kind of a food safety requirement from your buyers? Massachusetts uh, has a Commonwealth Quality Program, which is a sort of integrated food safety program that has absorbed GAP. So the MDAR staff that manages CQP is authorized through FISMA to be the food safety inspector and auditor and certifier. So GAP is sort of obsolete in Massachusetts as a result of this. So yes, we have gone through the Produce Safety Alliance training for food safety and the CQP audit annually and now have the certificate that I can furnish to Big Y when they want to know that we have uh, third-party auditing for food safety. So Massachusetts, in this way, as in many other ways, has made it a little bit easier for us that way. Massachusetts is the best state to farm in. I've never farmed in any other state, but our state Department of Agriculture is just a dream. They're awesome. And our state reps are good. And there's a lot of support here in this community. There's CISA was like one of the first by local campaigns that's here. There's just a lot of institutional support here and it's made stuff like FISM compliance, just like that much easier than other States. So we're very grateful for the help we've gotten from the state of Mass. This being the first year that the produce safety rule was in effect, have you guys had to make changes on your farm to meet those food safety requirements? Well, it was pretty convenient that we just built a new brand new building with a brand new wash pack facility in it. And we were able to sort of design it in a way that would be compliant from day one. So they kind of came out and they were like, oh, great, you're building this all into the building. And like, that's awesome. And that was pretty much the end of it. It was great. Yeah, we had the the ability to, to plan for that from the beginning with that building design. But I would say that also some of the organic regulations that we learned how to do when we became certified in 2014, even though we never changed our growing practices, we were always organic from day one. But when we decided to move more into wholesale, we decided it would be worthwhile to do the certification. I felt like a lot of the record keeping and some of that compliance made it easier to do the FISMA as well. I mean, there's water testing that's more than was required by organic certification for FISMA, but not a whole lot of new stuff to do. I mean, we had to have a food safety plan and we had to do food safety trainings for our staff, but honestly, all of that is sort of a good idea. So far, nothing has been too onerous. I'll let you know. <laughs> we'll talk about it in a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. We were kind of like, you know, of the opinion of like, well, these regs are coming down and you know, you kind of either have to just be a stick in the mud and complain all the time, or if you want to expand your business, you kind of just got to get on board. And honestly, like after we did this stuff, it's all good stuff, you know, spraying down the tables with bleach and, you know, changing the water that we're washing in, but you know, with crops from different fields, like it's all a good idea. And just building it into the core of what we do in our washroom. It was easier to incorporate those systems into the washroom because we had the experience of working in the shared kitchen facility, making the sriracha and salsa. And there are some serious rigid sanitation procedures and just rules in general for how you operate in that kitchen. And there's a whole other food safety training for food processing that I just went through in May or something. 
So a lot of that got drilled into us working in this, you know, food processing environment. And then it's like, well, why wouldn't I want to do a lot of the same safety measures and cleanliness standards in my food processing area at the farm? I took as part of my professional development around food safety, because I've done a lot of work with fresh produce food safety, both on my own farm and then after I stopped farming. I took a training for that was actually designed for processors rather than for fresh produce growers. And I felt like there was a lot of the procedures and the paperwork that they had and the way that things were laid out that was actually more useful than a lot of the examples that I felt like had been developed for produce growers that actually seemed to add more value to the process of helping people say, here's what you need to actually do to get things done and to get it done the way that it's supposed to be done. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. That mirrors our experience of doing food processing and having to comply with an even more rigid, you know, HACCP plan. And, and those things that just make you more conscious of the risks and it just makes you less likely to make mistakes. But yeah, I feel like the regs on produce, it's always kind of like trying to play catch up with people. It's like, what, you know, you can't have like dust from the loft, like falling down onto the fresh lettuce. No, you can't. But like, that's your washroom. So we kind of have to like, put a bandaid on it. Whereas like we had the experience to kind of like take that experience that we had in a clean kitchen and do, you know, a farm sort of practical farm version in our washroom, which is pretty great timing when we were designing our washroom. And the washroom is still fairly simple in design. You know, we've got floor drains and we've got sinks and we've got a stainless steel bagging table and a root tumbler and a rinse conveyor and another stainless table for packing out things. There's not much to it, but the materials are all compliant and it's very easy to clean. And, you know, there's a door where the dirty produce comes in from the field and there's a door where the clean produce leaves the dock and the cooler is there in the middle. It's all very logical. People come to the farm and they're like, you designed this? And we're like, "Uh, there's not much to it. It's just like an open room with some stuff and a directional flow. So... To take a little bit of a pivot then, although food safety and employees kind of go hand in hand together, but you mentioned that you've had several of your employees who've been with you for quite some time. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, we have a sort of division of labor that we talked about between Caroline and myself. And so we have different employees who report, you know, either to me or to Caroline. So we have essentially two teams. There's a harvest team. And there's a production team. And so this year we have five people and myself on production and we have something like 12 plus Caroline on the harvest team. So harvest team really includes everything from sales and packing and anything happening with uh, harvest. So when people come to work for us, often they'll start off on the harvest crew. My two tractor operators actually started on the farm in 2014 as harvesters and they two years as harvesters before they ever got on a tractor. So we kind of like use the harvest team to gauge people's commitment to the farm. And it's a good way of sort of like introducing people to what the farm is all about. So this is the quality we're going for. This is, you know, these are the kinds of customers that we have. And one of the things actually I'm very proud of is that nobody on our, whole farm basically had any kind of farm background 
So we've trained myself included. Like I basically taught myself how to operate tractors and how to use all the equipment. And I've taught everybody who works for me how to do it. So I'm sure there's like some gaps in my knowledge and there's stuff that we're really not doing right, but I don't know because I only know what I know. And the people who work for me with the exception of it, my production manager has really gone out of his way to educate himself sort of independently. So he's always on YouTube looking at how to fix stuff, which is like the best thing that I think has ever happened to me in my life. Um, Having someone else who's like, bringing more knowledge to the table on the farm than I'm capable of. So that's been great. We have a pretty awesome pipeline for employees in this part of Western Massachusetts because we have UMass, which has a agricultural, the Stockbridge School and a sustainable agriculture program. So a lot of our employees graduate having done a little bit of book learning about farming. And then some of them have worked on the, say, the student farm at UMass or might have done a season at another farm. And then there's people who've studied farming at other schools like Green Mountain College or Hampshire or Wesleyan. Uh, Wesleyan, yeah. So we primarily hire college graduates who have had a little taste of it, who know enough that they aren't too green when they show up, that they know what they're getting into and still have an interest in learning more. But for the most part, we're teaching them just about everything but they're very passionate. They're very smart, very competent. You know, we rely on our team to make a lot of judgment calls, to really do a lot of problem solving, to just go out there and take work independently and work collaboratively. And there's a lot of complexity to what we're doing with managing our harvest lists and our loads coming in and the fields. And there's just a lot of logistics and it requires a lot of thinking so we're super psyched that we have people who are not only like really competent and really passionate and eager to learn that this has been an amazing source of employees for us. I would add to that over the last five years that we've been expanding, our crew has grown with us in that we, every year, it seems we create another role that we can move someone who already works for us into to give them more sense of ownership more responsibility, professional development, and a pay raise. We kind of see it as like integral to the success of the farm to keep expanding so that we can pay our employees more and through the process of expanding, create more roles. Like we're going to have a kitchen manager role, you know, in the next year that we're going to put somebody in. It's exciting. I feel like we're creating these opportunities in real time for real people that are, have been with us. And it's really probably the most gratifying part of the job for me at the moment. Awesome. With that, we're going to take a quick break, get one more word from one more sponsor, and then we'll be right back with the lightning round. This lightning round is brought to you by Farmers Web, software for your farm. Farmers Web makes it easy to work with your buyers, saving you time, increasing efficiency, reducing mistakes, and streamlining order management. Farmers Web helps you manage orders from buyers who place them online, but also those that order by phone or by email. Use Farmers Web to generate a product catalog for buyers, allow buyers to view your real-time availability online, and create harvest lists and packing slips for your orders. Farmers Web helps you inform your buyers of delivery routes, pickup locations, lead times, and more while helping you keep track of special pricing and customer information. You can also download detailed financial reports. 
Farmers Web offers a free account type and a flat monthly fee on paid plans. You can pause, cancel, or switch plan types at any time. Check out a demo video and Farmers Web guide to working with wholesale buyers at farmersweb.com. Caroline, what's your favorite tool on the farm? I would say a scale. It's kind of silly, but when we're driving, you know, across the bridge to another town to do harvesting, you want to make sure that you have everything you need before you drive home. And this is an innovation that I did not come up with, but we now bring scales out into the field with us to make certain that if we're trying to hit a number, we definitely hit that number and don't have to drive back again to get an extra pound. Nice. And Tim, how about you? So my favorite tool is the pump, the irrigation pump. So like we have these little point wells in various fields. And so we can set up irrigation just with a small engine, two inch sort of irrigation pump. But we figured out that when we were farming five miles away and we didn't have any water there, we were like, how are we supposed to fill the transplanter? And so we came up with this idea by copying one of our neighbors, but we're able to pump out of groundwater into this tank that's in our box truck that we use to move transplants around. So we can go to any field that we have, hook up the pump to the well, pump the well water into like a 250 gallon tank, it takes like a minute. And then, you know, we fill the transplanter also, you know, quite rapidly and you can drive it anywhere. So like that, that was something I was pretty proud of. And I kind of think reflects the weird way that we farm. Nice. How did you guys get started in farming? I had been working as a journalist in Manhattan at the New York Observer back in 2000. 9-11 happened and I was really interested in food, but like didn't take it seriously and finally got the push to go to culinary school. And as I was working in kitchens and cooking at home and being really inspired by food, I found myself at the farmer's market as the source for the best ingredients and just had my eyes opened and got the bug to go have an experience working on a farm in Italy and try it out. And I also post culinary school, worked at the farmer's market as a manager and doing chef demos. And that is how I met Tim, who had been taking time off from Hampshire and was working as a market manager. The day before I got my job, he went off to work on a farm in Italy. So we had this sort of parallel missed paths experience. And once he returned, we hit it off. That's sort of like the pre-story and that was like sort of before I actually farmed. <laughs> so I had spent one season working on the Hampshire College Farm. This is in 2001. That was my first farming season. And then took a summer job at Green Market in New York City. And I just spent the whole time like talking to all these farmers. Like it was my job to go around and just kind of like chat people up and collect the checks and take out the trash and it was an incredible experience to meet some of the top growers in the Northeast and really kind of pick their brains. And I remember all of them were saying like, you shouldn't ever start a farm. It's terrible. It's horrible. I, you know, it's too much work. And I just, you know, went and did it anyway, but I don't think either of us would have done a farm if we hadn't met the other person. Cause our sort of like teamwork thing that we have together, I think is, pretty important. And I think if Caroline and I weren't a thing, I don't think the farm would be a thing. Caroline, is that true? 
Yeah, I definitely would not want to do this alone. And Tim and I have different approaches to the work that we do, but we have from the first minute that we met shared this vision of like enjoying food, being excited about the food that we grow and just like an unparalleled pleasure in eating what we produced ourselves. And, you know, I would say that some of that was an experience that I had in Italy working on this farm and like eating the big communal lunch in the middle of the day and taking time and really wanting to recreate that experience in my life every day back at home. And that's something that we share and that we have been doing every day. Yeah. From the very first moment that we were conceiving the idea of the farm, it was about creating our own private Italy. We just kind of like wanted to bring that sense of the world, you know, that's food based, you know, this is our food and like, this is our community. And we sit down and we have a meal every day and we've been doing it for 10 plus years on our farm every day with our staff. And I think maybe the intensity is a little different than our experiences in Italy. Mm-hmm. but we try to preserve as much of the quality of life as we can. All right. And when I ask what's your favorite crop to grow, Tim, is that going to be a reflection of your experience in Italy? Well, you know, it's funny because I actually did my college thesis on radicchio and early on that was really my passion. And I actually spent time in Treviso a whole summer interviewing farmers and like working on radicchio farms. And this was back in 2005. So maybe I was ahead of my time because we actually had stopped growing it for several years. Um, and it was only sort of like to my friend, Chris uh, Campo Rosso farm. He was like, Oh, you know, I really want to start this farm about radicchio. And I was like, maybe I should do that again. But anyway, radicchio isn't really my favorite crop anymore. Um, we're really into peppers now. So we have this, I feel like I'm, I'm halfway decent at growing peppers where I feel like radicchio is still a very challenging crop. So it's bolting or getting mildew or whatever, but we've had really good success with peppers. And currently it's kind of taken on extreme obsession levels. So we're currently growing 150 different varieties of peppers this year. Wow. And we're getting into, I think we have just 40 alone of this super hot varieties of ghost peppers and seven pot scorpion peppers and in every color imaginable, you know, those indigo rose tomatoes, like there's peppers that have that, that are in the super hot category. We're growing those. That's something that's like just this crazy amateur breeding scene. So we're sort of, a little tapped into that. And we have this pepper festival where we set up this one day a year or a whole weekend. We set up all of the peppers in this incredible array. And, you know, we have a festival, there's bands and there's food trucks and beer and people come out and burn their faces off on the peppers and it's hilarious. And so yeah, hot peppers in particular, that's what I'm, I'm really passionate about right now. And how about you, Caroline, what's your favorite crop to grow? I really do love picking peppers. It's really just so gratifying. But I would say, kind of ironically, radicchio is really a personal favorite because when it's really good, it looks like hell. And you have to have the eye and you have to have the experience and you have to be able to recognize that when it's like kind of slimy on the top 
inside you have this amazing dense red crimson head it's not for the faint of heart <laughs> at least in our climate i don't know maybe maybe in the pacific northwest radicchio looks pristine in its natural state in the field but it's one of those really sort of touchy vegetables that doesn't show its true colors except to those who really appreciate it caroline if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing what would it be the thing that we've really had to learn the hard way over many years is the farm is a business, but the farm really what it is for us every day is a community. It's a group of people who are just pulling for each other, looking out for each other and enduring difficult things because we care about why we care about the goal. We care about the product, the result, and we care about each other. And it was very personal at the beginning. I didn't really think about a farm as being more than something that me and Tim were doing and maybe our family, but it really is about so many more people than just us. And Tim, how about you? If you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? I would tell my former self to like borrow more money earlier. I really feel like I've seen it a million times with other farms. People are so risk averse and they're hesitant to take on debt and their farms don't thrive if they're not well equipped and have infrastructure and all of that stuff costs a ton of money. And I just like, I really don't think that farms are going to ultimately be sustainable if they're lacking good equipment that's reliable infrastructure that is sane workplace, good systems, production capacity, all this stuff, you know, you need to spend the money up front and best way to do it is to borrow it, you know, unless you have it of your own. But that's the one thing. I, I just wish we had invested earlier. Caroline and Tim, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. I really enjoy your program. And uh, I think it's, it's just a great thing. I love, can I, just like stroke your ego for a second. Go ahead. I, what I, I love complain. about your, what I love about your podcast is that it's not like this is how you do things or like you're bringing people on that, you know, have all the answers and having them tell other people how to do it the right way. I just feel like the greatest thing about your podcast is that you're asking hard questions. You're getting people to tell, you know, a real story and, you know, there are a lot of things that make all these farms very similar, but there is no right one way to do it. And everybody sort of has their own challenges based on their land and their markets. And, and it's just great to, you know, be able to hear from other growers. And it's a wonderful thing you've created. So thanks. And I'm so lucky that people are willing to take part of their Thursday afternoon in the middle of July and share their farm with me. Thank you so much. This is awesome. All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 171 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. You can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Kitchen Garden. That's K-I-T-C-H-E-N-G-A-R-D-E-N. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farm equipment and of high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Osborne Quality Seeds, a dedicated partner for growers. Visit osborneseed.com 
for high-quality seed, industry-leading customer service, and fast order fulfillment. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. If you like the show, please head on over to iTunes, leave us a review, or talk to us in the show notes, or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. You can support the show by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I am working to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com, and I will do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.